21 minutes, okay. Welcome to the Basilea Hollywood Podcast, a community of friends committed to the message and practice of Jesus and his kingdom. I have the privilege of talking about one of the most amazing chapters. I mean, there are so many amazing chapters, it's difficult to say that, but uh, Matthew 9 and a series of miracles that Jesus performs that are just stunning. Um, So I hope that the Holy Spirit can use what you hear this morning and deposit something life-giving to each one of you. So uh, what I've called this little talk is miracle miracle interrupted bringing resurrection to the living dead. So in Matthew 9, we're going to start with verse 18 and go to the end. And I'm going to just select uh, two of the miracles. And this is a slew of miracles. It's like after the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus went on the best possible kind of rampage and just was healing left and right. It's like grace just was leaking out of him and he couldn't help it. Um, And I think there's something to that that I want to bring up as well. Whoops, why am I in Hebrews? It's a great book, but we're not talking about that. Okay, Matthew 9. Here we go. Close your eyes, take this in. While Jesus was saying these things to to them, behold, a ruler came in, and he knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. And Jesus turned and seeing her said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house, and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away. The girl's not dead. She's only sleeping. They laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in, took her by the hand, and she arose. And the report of this went through the whole district. And to give you a sense of context, um, the chapter begins with the story of the lame man who is brought by his friends to the gathering that Jesus is at. And there's that moment where Jesus says, take heart, my son, for your sins are forgiven. And, you know, then there's the brouhaha about that. And then um, Jesus calls Matthew. There's, you know, various theological questions. And in the midst of these theological questions about fasting, Jesus is interrupted by this desperate ruler who throws himself at his feet and um, kind of uh, in a display of sheer desperation asks that Jesus interrupt um, this public speech and go to his home. Then after that, uh, after he raises Jairus' daughter from the dead, after that, um, Jesus heals two blind men and then he heals a man who's mute and then says those famous words, the harvest is plentiful, plentiful, but the workers, 
are few. So that's just the whole map, Matthew 9. Okay. Something to notice. I'm going to first um, go to the next slide. This is a linoleum cutout by a woman named Kathy Kolwitz. Uh, she's Russian. She was born in the 1880s. She lived through World War I and II. She lost her first son in World War I. She married a German doctor. She moved to Berlin. And her husband primarily took care of the, the poorest of the poor. And meanwhile, she was studying art and becoming quite good and then eventually internationally famous for her work. Um, when World War II broke out, people offered to airlift her out of Berlin. She was quite famous at the point. And she stayed because she wanted to not only wit be, stand witness to the suffering that was happening in Germany, but also she had been threatened by the Gestapo who said that if she left, her family would be murdered. She, she stayed. Her work is understandably heavy. <laughs> and we're talking about a chapter where th these are moments of intense human suffering. This is intensity of emotion. This is desperation in a lot of ways. And the kinds of evil laid out in, in Matthew 9 have to do with, with physical suffering and disease, but suffering is suffering. And Jesus addresses suffering in really particular ways that are amazing. And the next slide is of a mother losing her child and death claiming her child, which is her first son. And I want us to understand the intensity of Jairus's emotion. This is his daughter, whom he, up till when a woman was tw a child, we consider 12 to be a child, but in ancient times, that was actually about the time when you start, uh, a, a woman gets betrothed. So she'd been brought all the way through to maturity. And he clearly, clearly loved this child. And what's interesting about this chapter, chapter 9, is the intensity of the miracles performed and of the emotion ratchets up intensely. Like, that was repetitive, but regardless, there's a lot of intensity going on. <laughs> um, and it starts out with a bang, with Jesus basically confronting sin and saying, I have the capacity to forgive sin. And then he moves on to raise the dead. And I think that there's something about that sequence as well. So we almost move from a sort of generalized compassion, which is kind of the first slide, you know, the, the huddled masses. You know, the Sermon on the Mount is this declaration of the kingdom of God that Jesus is moved by witnessing the suffering of masses of people to kind of proclaim the kingdom, but then he becomes incredibly specific, almost embarrassingly specific in addressing pain, addressing death, to the point where, I mean, for heaven's sakes, this woman whose uterus has been bleeding for 12 years, he heals her, he addresses her, and, and she was an, a basically invisible component of society. Um, the other amazing thing about this is that, you know, 
Jesus isn't embarrassed by the kind of suffering or these diseases. He reaches out and he actually touches people. And I think that that's, in this, this emotion is attractive to God. He has intense compassion for us in the midst of these kinds of things. Um, so it's also true that in chapter 9, to a certain extent, it signals the beginning of the end for Jesus himself as well. He's attracting a little bit too much attention. And with all of these miracles that he performs, afterwards there's kind of this little speech he gives where he's like, now don't tell anyone, okay? He almost should have had people sign things or something because nobody could keep their mouth shut. Here was this man who had such intense authority and compassion. He was always moved by compassion first. Um, so who are these characters that we're talking about in this chapter? Who is Jairus? Well, Jairus is, he was a well-known official. He was a public figure. He had been elected into his office, essentially, as the synagogue leader. And you have to understand at this point that opposition to Jesus is building amongst the religious elite. And this man is brought by desperation to such a point that he throws himself at the feet of this controversial man of this Jesus character, and says, I've heard what you can do, and I don't care what the theological quibbles might be. I need you. So this man is willing to throw everything away, essentially, his standing with the people. And his daughter, beloved, privileged, but does, you know, in desperate need. And then this woman, think about this woman for a minute, who interrupts. Jesus on his way to raise the dead. Um, women who bled at any time in bleeding, you can read this in um, various laws of the covenant that are detailed in the Old Testament. Um, you're ceremonially unclean, okay? So that means you can't worship. You can't go to the temple. You can't have any kind of like palpable contact with God. Not only that, you can't touch holy people. You can't touch rabbis. If you do, they have to go through a long cycle of becoming ceremonially cleansed. In some cases, up to two weeks. Uh, that's inconvenient. <laughs> and not only that, because she'd been suffering for 12 years, it's likely that this happened at puberty. Something went wrong. So she couldn't marry. And you have to understand in this context Marriage was a woman's only means of security. She had some way of making money because she spent it on trying to get well because she was that desperate. But you have to understand, she had zero standing. She was invisible. The next slide is a good kind of rendition of, of her inner state. She was nothing. A ghost. So it's amazing when you think about this moment, right? This great public official has done this dramatic thing, thrown himself at the feet of Jesus and said, please just come to my house. My daughter will be made well if you just come. And everyone's interested in this, right? The crowds come with him. There's kind of a parade of hangers-on and sightseers swirling around Jesus. All of his disciples come with him. He's on his way. It's crowded. 
And this woman, because she touched the tassel of his garment, is on the ground. She somehow crawled up to him in the midst of all that turmoil and just barely touched his tassel. And these are normally, in modern day, they're attached to your belt loop, normally, and they're kind of long. They're like this. And um, so what's amazing about this is it says something about faith, right? And we're going to get into that a little bit, but something about the quality of this woman's faith and desperation activated, involuntarily activated, Jesus' healing power. Wow. (laughs) So there's something about this state of heart that reaches out in faith that Jesus almost can't help responding to. Um, So you think about this moment. This woman touches the tassel, and Jesus stops, feels the grace come out of him. Some translations call it grace, power. And says, something happened. Faith happened. What was that? Well, he said, you know, someone touched me. And the disciples are like, you're, you know, you're crazy. Of course, we're all touching you. No, in a special way, someone touched me. And normally, like, it was Jesus who reached out and touched and healed. And suddenly, it was the opposite sort of situation. And um, so... Can you imagine the woman's heart racing and her kind of like trying to retreat, just get behind the hems of the other people, like the hems of other people's robes and just, whoa, whoa, this is bad. No, no, I feel my body well, but I can't, I can't handle this much. No, this is going to be really bad. You know, you can almost hear a pin drop or the dust motes in the air, you know, kind of settling as everyone hushes down and says, what is Jesus up to? And all attention is suddenly on this woman. And she's thinking to herself, I could be stoned right now. I could die. This man has a right to be angry with me, and this crowd could turn on me. What does Jesus say? Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And I want us to understand that Jesus addresses the heart first. And he did that as well with the paralytic, where he said, let's see what he said. I have to remember what he said. He said, take heart as well. Take heart. Take heart. These are two parallel sort of statements that almost exactly mimic each other. The first one is, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven, which is Jesus taking on the authority and forgiving sins and having that happen first as a a way through to resurrection. And then the second phrase that says, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And there's something about this, right? Jesus needs to pave the way. He needs to resurrect us from death. But then we respond in faith so that we can live a whole life, a healed life. But I love how Jesus isn't show-offy. He's not like just immediately getting to the 
to the fireworks and, you know, mending bones for everyone to see. He's not a magician. He first goes for the heart and he addresses people's inner brokenness. And, you know, this, this woman who, there's another good slide here too of St. Cecilia, but I think this is also like a, a demonstration of what this woman felt. And um, then the next slide is by Donatello. It's Mary Magdalene. When we come to Jesus, we're not unlike this <laughs> many times. And I want to say a word or two about desperation. I really have very little time, so I'm really not covering a lot that I would like to cover, but that's okay. Desperation is clearly on display right here. Um, and there's a kind of parallel with the Sermon on the Mount where you hear all these blesseds, one after the other after the other. And then these beautiful miracles seem to be underlining that this idea that blessed are the desperate. Blessed are there moments like in each one of our lives when we feel at our wit's end and we can't provide our own healing at all. And there's something kind of amazing about desperation because there's no impediment suddenly to faith. There's none of the typical pride that prevents us from saying what we need. There's no more self-reliance or uh, kind of overestimation of our own capacities. There's real zeal for change. We're no longer content with living with whatever it is that's killing us. And there's disregard for the cost. Right? Jarius, like, gives up his reputation. He's groveling at the feet of some itinerant preacher. There's a lifting of caution, which, by the way, doesn't mean the abandonment of wisdom or basic common sense. That's important. But I want to say as well that desperation is always a moment of extreme vulnerability. And in every one of these cases, Jesus honors the vulnerability of the people who come to him in desperation. He patches them together and gives them new dignity that is wrapped completely around him. I want to say as well that desperation, though, it is very highly transformative and it's necessary even in moments of, you know, our salvation, our initial, initial salvation. And there are ongoing moments of desperation. But I would go so far as to say, though, that desperation is not intended to be our normal mode of operation. Okay? Um, that transformative revelation where pain becomes so acute that we're willing to throw away all other things in order to be relieved is a moment of ongoing salvation, right? So there's that initial moment. And then there, are, there will be moments of desperation continually in your life. But... It's not supposed to be every day. Um, think about it. Uh, desperation is often based on fear. Fear that something is going to go, be going dramatically wrong, right? And perfect love casts out fear. So if you think about it, 
if we continue in this state not believing that God will be good to us and hear our desperation and respond to it, it's like an orphan that's been adopted into a loving home and uh, squirrels away food and snacks and scraps under their bed continually because they don't believe that God is, like, dinner is going to show up miraculously on the table every, every night. So there's a kind of, like, we have to start leaning into trust. So it says, I'm just going to read some of this here. God is love. Where there's love, there cannot be fear. After the crisis of salvation, desperation transforms into trust. It becomes grateful obedience. And the fear associated with the extraordinary vulnerability of crisis can become confidence because our nakedness and shame have been embraced. Against all expectation, when we are most unlovely, we're loved. Suddenly there's nothing to hide. And those with nothing to hide are those that we can call confident. This is because walking in faith with confidence and not in cringing desperation has everything to do with experiencing and knowing the love of God. Relying on it means that we can sleep as peacefully as Jesus did in the bow of a ship tossed by a raging storm. From there, the possibility of leading a stabilized life of love in the midst of a world of fear that idea for the first time is planted in our hearts. And we can learn to thrive by cultivating a life steered by a pure heart, which has been shaped by love and wisdom, and is therefore less likely to be buffeted by crisis on a, continually ba a continual basis. In this way, there is the capacity and space in your own heart to bear the burdens of others, bring them peace, deliver hope, carry diseases, and make your own emotions available and responsive to the pain of others. In other words, we can be like Jesus was in chapter 9. And I want to make a few comments about the nature of faith as well. And go to the next slide. This is by Caravaggio. Doubting Thomas, take heart. <laughs> These things are hard to believe. But Jesus is compassionate and recognizes that faith depends entirely on who and what we place it in. And Hebrews 11 is this beautiful description of faith. And there's a little verse in there, Hebrews 11, 11, in this long litany and description of the various saints who have had faith that's outstanding. Boy, is that an inspirational chapter. This little verse says, By faith Sarah received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered that him who was faithful, or sorry, him, he who he is faithful who had promised. So he is faithful who had promised. So having faith in a faithful God is the only kind of powerful faith that you can have, right? Because faith is 
a basic piece of equipment in the human psyche. We all have faith in various things. We have faith that when you drive home, people are going to stop at the red light. We all have faith in that. We have faith that, you know, drinking enough water is good for your body and very bad if you don't. These things are supported by factual experience, et cetera, so on and so forth. And there's a feedback that happens. And that's what Hebrews 11 is all about. There's this feedback. People place extraordinary faith in God, and then God does extraordinary things. So there's this collaborative sort of effect to faith. And we see that at work in chapter 9 as well. But it has everything to do with building up that experience with a faithful God. Everything to do with who we put our faith in. If we put our faith in a faulty vessel, we'll be disappointed. And God is offering through his, like, these descriptions in, in, in chapter 9 and so many other places to show us exactly how faithful he is and compassionate. So let's just take a minute and let the Holy Spirit take inventory of our hearts and spirits for a moment and let him hover over places that feel dead and desperate in your life. Search us and know us, God. If there are places in our lives that feel like dead wood, places where we feel desperate or numb, feel like giving up, would you right now make them visible to us? Father, some of us have no real faith in these areas. It's hard to work up, to muster up the kind of faith that we see on display in Matthew 9. But we say in our hearts, we believe, help our unbelief. We have tasted and seen that you are good God, and that faith placed in you is productive faith.
And so we lean in on the fact that you are compassionate. And when we come to you bearing these burdens, your reflexive response is take heart. Take heart. You have placed your faith in the one man who can heal you. And so God, you came to give life and to give life abundantly and to the full. And when we don't know how to do anything else except come to you, we have done the best thing. And so we lay down our self-reliance and in simple trust, believe that you are so good that you can't help yourself, you respond. So we look for you to respond, Jesus.